Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard, live from the Montreal Just for Laughs Festival in Montreal, Canada. Every year we come here. I love it. It's an amazing experience. If you've never been, you have to come. It's an incredible resource for all kinds of comedy in the world, and it's just an extraordinary event. So many great shows. And as always, I like to come up here, and in my spare time, I love to sit down with some of the greatest comedians and comedy artists in the world, and today is no exception. Very, very excited about this. Before I get started, I just want to thank you guys so much for giving me the license and the opportunity to be able to do this podcast and be able to bring it to you. It brings me great joy. And so many people have come up to me unsolicited, stop me here. It's so humbling to know when you decide to do something that maybe a lot of people have told you not to do and you do it anyway because you believe in it and you believe what it stands for and you want to be of assistance and you want to be a productive member of society and do something that can help people when you didn't have the access to that kind of help when you were coming up. And again, I will never stop saying it. I am so, so grateful. And so as I always do in every podcast, when I look at my guest, I don't know what I'm going to say or what I'm going to think or how I'm going to present things. But when I look at uh, Sashir Zameda, I really have a lot of powerful feelings, and I want to share them with you. 
one of the things I notice about her is that she has such poise and such power and such extraordinary charisma and such talent from what I've seen her do. Somebody who has experienced the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. But yet when she walked in here today, just this incredible positive energy and belief and excitement and confidence of what the future will bring. And if ever I see that, every time I see that, I really truly believe that you can be in a position to win all the time. I mean, we're talking about somebody who got a dream job on Saturday Night Live, yet before that auditioned many, many times and didn't get it, and finally got her dream to be on one of the greatest shows in the history of television, yet be careful what you wish for because things don't always go the way you want them to. And regardless of whether you feel it's your part or their part or a combination of both, you have to figure out how to navigate in that world and try to do the best you can to succeed. And one of the things I respect about Sashir is that when she realized that things weren't working the way she wanted them to, she made efforts to make things better. She did what she could to try to make her situation as positive as possible in a job that she was looking so forward to. And when she felt that she had exhausted those resources in her mind and things still weren't going the way she wanted them to, she made a decision to walk away. And I think it's an amazing thing when anybody fights hard to get what they want and they get it and they go through obstacles and they keep fighting and they persevere and they overcome the obstacles to get where they want to go. But there's something to be said for somebody who analyzes themselves as a person, analyzes where they are in the workplace and the job they're at, and actually comes to the conclusion, along with the people who they work with, that maybe, just maybe, I can go on from here and I can work in the type of job that's better suited to my temperament, my personality, my skill set, and I will thrive in the future and so will my employer. And that takes a really special person to have that kind of feeling and that kind of knowledge within yourself and that kind of confidence. It's the kind of confidence that Dave Chappelle had at Comedy Central when he walked away from $50 million and everybody looked at him and thought, why is this guy doing this? Well, I can't speak for Dave directly, but I would imagine it was because he felt 
that he would be better off in the future doing things a different way. No matter how long or how much time it took, he felt in his heart that it would be in his best interest if he wasn't at Comedy Central anymore. And the people at Comedy Central, even though they were torn and they didn't want to see it happen, they had to believe in their hearts as a company that they could go forward with a directive and shows that could take their network to the next level as well. And both of them used what they had to take things to a new stratosphere. When I look at Sashir Zameda, I say to myself what I want to share with you. If you can figure out a way to fight hard for what you want, get to where you want, and if you're in a position where, let's say, things don't go the way you want them to go, and you've made the effort to address things and they still don't go the way you want them to go, don't be afraid to take your ball and go home because you'll realize in the future that maybe you'll be better off, you'll find the next thing that'll be great for your career, and that company will find the next thing that will help them get to the next level. And it will be a meaningful experience for both, even if it was painful. And if you can figure out how to do that, I can guarantee you, you have a great possibility of having the kind of career that Sashir Zameda has. And here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now? Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Without further ado, I will introduce my guest today, who I am more than excited to introduce. So let's go. Sashir Zameda is a comedian, actress, and writer. Best known for her great work on Saturday Night Live the last few years, she received improv and sketch training from the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater and performed stand-up at colleges and clubs across the country. She's appeared on People of Earth, Transparent, Inside Amy Schumer, and Totally Biased with W. Kamau Bell. She co-created and co-starred in the web series Pursuit of Sexiness, which was named one of the top ten web series by Variety magazine. Sashir has been listed in Cosmopolitan's 13 Funny Women to Watch, Time Out New York's Top 10 Funniest Women in New York City, and Brooklyn Magazine's 50 Funniest People in Brooklyn, and Complex Magazine's Women in Comedy You Should Be Paying Attention to Right Now. She's performed at the most prestigious festivals in the world, including Bonnaroo, South by Southwest, Moon Tower, Sketchfest in San Francisco, Vodafone, Bridgetown, New York, Brooklyn, Limestone, North Carolina, Great American Comedy, Women in Comedy, and the New York Comedy Festivals. On March 20th, 
of this year, Sashir's first stand-up special, Pizza Mind, premiered on CISO. She stars in the films Slight, Yoga Hosers, The Outdoorsman, and Deirdre and Lainey Robitrain. She's done incredible voiceover work for BoJack Horseman, Call of Duty, Albert on Nickelodeon, and the Lucas Brothers Moving Company. She also serves as the ACLU Celebrity Ambassador for Women's Rights. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today, Sashir Zameda. Yeah, you got All it. All right, I did it. <laughs> I feel so strongly today. It's odd, but there's something about you that's transferring to me, this power. Yeah. I know you know how talented you are. I know you know what you're capable of. I know you know what the landscape is. And I know you know this business is filled with doubt, which is the greatest career killer of all time. But there's something about you that screams to me that you have the power to always overcome all the times when this business breaks your legs. Wow. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I think so. I feel like I've, I don't know. I, I've had my legs broken, so I feel like uh, rejection is a thing that has built up a, I don't know, kind of thick skin, I guess. Do you remember the first time you were doing something in this business where you felt rejected? Yeah. Um, after college, I went to the University of Virginia, majored in drama, and I was doing improv, and... I took a semester and a summer to work at Disney World. They had a Disney college program. And I thought I would stay in the Disney family. I was like, oh, I'm already in the system, so maybe I'll work at Disney more. And I was on some listserv that would send out casting calls for different things. And so there was one for a big band jazz singer at Tokyo Disney. I've never been a big band jazz singer before, but for some reason I was like, this is it. And I didn't have any post-graduation plans, but I was like, this seems like a cool thing to do for a year and then I'll figure it out after that. And so I, I was in Charlottesville, Virginia, and I took a Chinatown bus to New York to, t to do this audition. And this is my first real life audition that wasn't like a school play or something. You took a bus from Virginia to New York. Well, I drove to DC and then took a bus from DC to New York, yeah. Could you tell the audience what the material was for the audition for Tokyo Disney World? We had to sing a song of your choice, and then we had there was a dance portion where they would teach you choreography and you would do it. And I was <laughs> so green and just truly didn't know what I was doing. But I, I had my sheet music for open arms. That was like my go-to singing audition song and uh and because i knew that dancing was involved i was like i want to look cute but also comfortable so i had these yoga pants and like a cute pink top or something but what i didn't know is that you do the singing portion first dressed up and then if they ask you back for the dancing portion then you change your clothes so i'm looking at everybody else in like heels and ties and dress shirts and i'm like why are they're gonna be so unprepared for the dancing portion and then realize oh you change um, so I look like a slob <laughs> compared to everybody else. <laughs> and then I did my singing audition and 
it was fine, I guess. I, I mean, the piano was going way slower than I wanted it to. And I kept <laughs> tapping my thigh to like make them catch up to me, but uh, that's not what you're supposed to be doing. And yeah, the, the people, the casting people were just like, okay, thank you. And I was like, um, but what, the, what about the next part? And they're like, that's enough, thanks. And then I left and I was just crying down the street, calling my dad like, that That was it, that was my plan and it's gone. And I don't have any plan because I knew I was positive that I was going to Tokyo Disney and I wasn't. So I just went back home or went back to Charlottesville to finish school <laughs> and then, uh, lived in Maryland with my ex-stepmom for a few months and like worked at Starbucks. Your ex-stepmom? Yeah, because... I've never heard that before. Yeah, well, she was my stepmom and then her and my dad split and now she's technically my ex-stepmom. But, and I guess I could say my stepmom, but I have had a stepmom after her. So, so she's my ex-stepmom. In those relationships, is there always a point in time where you're heard uttering the sounds from a hallway, you're not my mother. <laughs> I don't think I've ever said that to her. We we did have a rough patch when I was younger when they when because they married when I was eleven, I think, and I lived with my mom, my biological mother, and yeah, I I did have those feelings of you're not my mother, and was I was a real bitch. I was real shitty to her for a couple years, and then. Eventually, I'm not sure what changed, but I started to like her and she was like a cool other parent I could talk to who wasn't my mom or my dad. And she was really great at advice. And then when I was 18, her and my dad split and I was like, oh, fuck, I don't know what to do because I just started liking this lady <laughs> and I love her. And so I, I called her for her birthday that year after I found out they had split and we just talked for hours and she was like, you can keep calling me if you want. And I was like, I think I will. So I kept calling her and then, yeah, I just chose to keep her in my life. And that felt like the first real adult thing that I ever did where I was like, I'm making a decision to make this person stay. I don't have to, you know, live the way that like whatever else is going on in my family doesn't matter. Like I, I know I love this person, so I want to keep her around. So yeah, I invited her to my graduation and then like would visit her as much as my parents and after I graduated from college, I didn't want to live at home back in Indiana where my mom is, and I didn't want to live with my dad, so I lived with my ex-stepmom. Was your dad friendly with her still or no? I think cordial. They didn't, like, talk or anything. And they didn't have kids together, so they had no reason to continue talking. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. 
I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Everybody wants love. Every song on the radio, it's about either finding love, losing love, or getting crushed by a love. Mm-hmm. A person who's looking for love, it's like they board the plane. You know, whatever kind of plane it is, it could be a little prop plane. But they crawl out of the wreckage. They dust themselves off. They limp out of the wreckage, and the first thing they say is, where's the nearest airport? (laughs) But you would never do that. But with love, you always do that. And so I'm wondering for you, when you witness these situations where people are in your life who are your parents and step-parents, they're searching for love, they find love, they lose love, then they go back again. How did that affect you in your relationships and love? It greatly affected me. I remember telling my dad that seeing his movement between women, and he's, if you met him, you'd be like, what a charming man, what a like nice, upstanding citizen of society. Um, but he has married a lot of women and been with a lot of women. And I don't know how he treats the women he's with in the relationship. I've never seen him, you know, be abusive or anything like that. But like he has cheated on people and like not been the best example of a partner. And that built a lot of distrust with me and made me really wary of men in general. So I didn't start dating till I was 23. And because I, the idea of meeting someone who could be great, could be a great guy, seem honest, and then one day realize, oh, he hasn't been honest this whole time or for a period of time he hasn't been honest, that was scary to me. I didn't want to even try to do that. I didn't want to participate in that because it just even thinking about my mom, like, it, I don't know. There was, there was probably so many other things going on in their marriage that I don't even know about. But, you know, to my nine-year-old self, it seemed like one day he woke up and was like, I don't love you anymore. And that's terrifying that you could fall out of love. But I didn't understand that concept. I was like, well, when you're in love, you're in love. And that's it. So you should just be together forever. But there's tons of other things that are in a relationship that have nothing to do with love and it complicates things. I mean, had to be a special guy to have you finally say, all right, I'm going to let go and let God or whatever it is. I'm going to go with this. And this is the guy I've chosen to start my journey with. He, we went to the same college together and we dated after college. Um, but we had a lot of the same friends in common. He seemed great. He was like, he, he was very smart and I don't know. He was great on paper. And uh, in my mind, I was like, I should just try it to see, I don't know, just to see what it would be like to be in a relationship, to like let go a little bit. So you had no attachments. You weren't saying to yourself, 
whoever I choose, that's got to be the one that's it. I guess I thought like, oh, this will be practice for another relationship, which I can't imagine he would like hearing that. But, but you know, it was like, I just figured there would be another one at some point in time. So I should try it now <laughs> to know what it's like. Um, and if this one works out forever, that's great too. But I, I should start <laughs> trying. I'm in my early twenties and I haven't dated anybody yet. So I'm missing out on a lot of just life experience. Did you crush him or did he crush you? Huh? I mean, I broke up with him, but I felt crushed. Like it felt like he made me break up with him because <laughs> he was, it was probably bad timing. It was probably a lot of things. It was like, um, he just wasn't a good boyfriend to me and he, I'm sure he is now to somebody else and probably has been good, a good boyfriend to other people before me. But at that time, uh, we probably both weren't fulfilling each other's needs. And so I'm the one who broke it off and it, the energy I received felt like, good. I'm glad you said it so that I wouldn't have to do it. And he wanted to be friends afterwards. And I was like, no, nah, man, I can't, <laughs> I can't do that. Do you think sometimes when a woman does break up with a guy, she wants him to fight for her to get her back? Hmm. Maybe sometimes. I think it's particularly to the woman. I didn't want to get back with him. I really did want to stop being with him. Um, cause I wasn't happy and I was like, I don't want more of this. And we had talks. It wasn't like, I've, I've never done anything where I just like cut something off cold. I never quit a job or like broken up with somebody or like a relationship or a friend with, without a talk before. Cause I want it to get better. I want it to do well. So, um, he, he should have known that I wasn't happy already. And then it didn't change. And I was like, well, it should end then. People in their personal lives, a lot of times, it mirrors what happens in their professional lives. I remember Sherry O'Terry telling me about how she felt on Saturday Night Live. She did 100 episodes, and every day that she started the week, she felt like she was auditioning for the show. You take somebody like Tracy Morgan. I could say this if Tracy were here. I represented him for many, many years. I think Tracy had a little bit of Farley in him, not the horrible addict, not the guy who was a wrecking ball of joy, but almost was just like, I'm just here and I'm oblivious to the fact that I'm not doing well and I'm just going to be friendly and jovial to everybody and hopefully this will turn around. Even did a sketch one time where he said, <laughs> These are my highlights of the show, and it was all him waving goodnight. <laughs> <laughs> but the point I'm trying to make is that when I was around SNL, Will Ferrell had no attachment to any political thing that happened. Now, it could be arguing, but that's because he got on all the time. He just did not care what anybody thought of him. He just had no fear. And I found that in that show, and in most jobs, when you have no fear, you have a better shot of navigating through the craziness. And when you're walking on eggshells wondering whether you're going to make it or not, 
that's when things start to go haywire. And so regardless of being SNL or any of the things you went into, do you feel like you went into them in a way where, you know, I'm going to try this, I'm excited about it? Yeah, I think so. I think I try my hardest to be like open and game to change and figure out how to be, you know, malleable to the situations. But then after a while, it's like, oh, okay. If I, after a while, after trying and trying and trying and trying, uh, you know, you got to realize, oh, I'm not the problem. And then get out. <laughs> that's, but yeah, I, I think I have approached a lot of jobs like a relationship where, or and maybe not on purpose, but just like if, if something's not working, my go-to is to talk to somebody. And that's how I do it in relationships. Something doesn't feel right. We should talk about this and see why because you might be thinking something that I don't know about or vice versa maybe I have an understanding that you didn't know and we need to be clear on that that's how I like to operate but um some people don't and then you gotta decide for yourself am I willing to work with this person who doesn't speak my same language or doesn't want to be as open and honest as I'd like to be there's only one person that speaks your language as an artist. You. Sure, but there's people that you can find who can understand your language. That's true. When did you know that when you looked in the mirror, you were like, oh, I'm more special than maybe the average person in terms of comedy and looking in the mirror and saying, I love what I see. I love myself. That I love myself part took a long time. Um, I don't know if I can even think of a particular time when I was looked in the mirror and was like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, when I was younger, I, I mean, I, I've had like so many issues of self-doubt and uh, confidence issues that I've been trying to work through. And I'm like, I seem very confident, but I, I grew up very shy. Um, and, and sometimes I'm still fighting that voice. It's like, who who do you think you are? Like, why do you think people need to hear what you have to say? But, you know, that's quieter than it used to be. And I don't know if I've ever thought that I'm more special than anyone else. I, I think I would, I don't know. I, I think that would maybe like hinder what I do a little bit if I started to think like I... I'm just, I just am better because maybe I wouldn't work as hard, but I don't know. I feel like I got where I am right now because I worked really hard and also like opportunity and being in the right place at the right time and et cetera, et cetera. But I also worked a shit ton and that's not something that I, I would do if it was like, if I felt like I have a gift and I'm special, <laughs> it's like, no, I need to work to learn how to right and and create and express myself and find my voice and and get it out to the people so they know what what I can do what was the first thing that you created or did where you got done with it and even you who might have been filled with doubt you came home you sat on the couch in the fetal position and you said I did it I cracked the code hmm I don't know what the first thing is, but I can think of a couple things. One was my 
improv group doppelganger. It was me and two other black ladies. This was in at UCB. And uh, yeah, I guess we, we, I was doing improv with Nicole Byer separately and I was doing improv with Keisha Zoller. And then I suggested that we all three improvise together. And uh, yeah, we were, we still are a powerhouse. We still perform together when we can. And when I perform with them, it's like, we are unstoppable. <laughs> like it feels like electric and um, we bring the best out of each other. So that, and so we would get off stage and just really feel like I left it out there. Like I left everything out there. We did everything we could possibly could and it felt great. Um, when you're with three people, how do who you speak my language? <laughs> <laughs> how do you alternate the straight person? You know, we kind of never did. Or no, we do. We do alternate sometimes. But most of the time, we kind of fall into the same pattern. So I'm usually a straight man, which I love being the straight man. Um, it uh, works for Ben Stiller very well in Ice Cube. Totally. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I feel like sometimes there there isn't as much love given to the straight man as, you know, the person who's being wacky and loud and stuff. Who is the funniest person in Seinfeld, in your opinion? Um, I mean, I would say Elaine. Who was the second funniest person with the most laughs? George. And who was the third <laughs> funniest person with the most laughs? Kramer. And who was last? Jerry. And who made more money than anybody else? <laughs> I mean, Jerry. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So you're in a good place. Yeah. But I also struggle with that, too, because like during improv classes i would get notes that would be like be bigger be louder be like you know go outside your comfort zone and i was like i feel like what i'm doing is funny but i guess not and then i finally had a teacher who him he himself is a straight man and is really good at being a straight man he saw what i was doing and was like oh here's a better way to do what you're doing here's a better way to be a straight man and i was like thank you <laughs> that's what i wanted that's what i would prefer i mean it's it's, it's nice to be like you know, you can do other things and like have range and I have range, but what I like doing <laughs> is wrangling other people and like kind of dancing around that they're crazy. Um, Tell our audience what it takes and what are some of the qualities that you were taught to be a great straight. When I say straight man and you're a woman, do women say straight man? You know? I, I guess I still say straight man too. I think some people's perception of what a straight man does is stopping the fun. And that's not what we're doing. You're not stopping the action and being like, wait a minute, let me call out the logic here. You're calling the logic out, but you're still allowing the fun to happen. So you kind of have to identify what the game is or what the theme is, where, where you're going. And then like egg it along enough to be like, I see what the crazy is. I'm calling it out and I'm, I'm, I'm the eyes of the audience and I'm kind of telling everyone why it's ridiculous, but I'm allowing it to happen because it should happen. It'd be so boring if it stopped. Tell me a time when you came back home, got on the couch in a different way in the fetal position and you put your head in your hands and you're like, God, I have a lot of character. I'm a great person, but I think I was a real asshole today and I did something really bad and I got to figure out how to clean that one up. Which story will I tell? <laughs> 
there was one time when I was starting off at improv classes and I wanted to desperately feel like I was part of this community. And I was, but you know, the, people didn't know me, I was new. And I remember talking to a teacher and I don't even know what we talked about or how long we talked, but I left the conversation feeling so horrible. <laughs> I was like, am I awkward? Like, is something wrong with me that it's not, that it didn't feel good? And I can't imagine he felt good <laughs> afterwards either. And I was, it made me question everything. I was like, maybe I should just quit. <laughs> like, I'm, I suck. And then, and then it took me a while to be like, oh, everyone else is awkward. <laughs> it wasn't me. Um, I mean, I can be awkward, but like we're all neurotic in some sort of way. So it, once I realized that it, navigating people in this community was much easier. Um, but yeah, that was definitely a moment where I was like, am I bad? <laughs> can I not hack it here? Um, and then, I mean, so many times at SNL when I went home and, and was like, yeah, I don't, I don't know what is wrong <laughs> i don't know what the thing is even or like there was an interaction or like maybe i was too blunt about giving a note or maybe i i i was confused about a a, a sketch and and we never really got to an actual answer yeah but there's there's so many things where now i i feel a little freer where i'm like i don't care i mean i care but like it whatever I, I won't remember this in in a few years or i'll look back at it and be like oh yeah i was really upset at, at that thing but it's fine hey everybody i'm really really excited we have a new sponsor aqua true this is the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology i know it sounds complicated but let's put it this way this is something that can take your tap water and can turn it into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You're going to be enjoying the best water, the safest water. And if you haven't read all the news about Flint, Michigan, in every single state, there's over 100 chemicals found in tap water that are not even regulated by the EPA. Many of them are cancer-causing and have lead in them. So you can go to a special website that we've set up called industrystandardwater.com. It takes you directly to the AquaTrue site. And if you get this product, you're going to get $100 off. Just type in 100 in the special code section. You'll get that money off and you'll start saving. You can put a whole huge bottle of Diet Coke in this machine. And 10 minutes later... It'll come out with the best tasting water you've ever had. I got one of these products. It was unbelievable. Industrystandardwater.com. And you'll be enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever tasted. I want to go way, 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 way back. Okay. So I want to just talk about where you grew up. Mm -hmm. What was the socioeconomic dynamic? How many kids in the family? What was happening growing up up until the point where you talked about before? And then what was your first inspiration of getting into this crazy business? Yeah. Well, uh, my dad was in the Air Force, so we moved around a bunch. 
I was born in Okinawa, Japan, and then we moved to San Antonio, Texas, and then Hampton, Virginia, Riverside, California. Is that why you wanted that Disney Japan gig? I guess so, yeah. I, I was already used to traveling, and I did want to go back to Japan just to visit my roots. <laughs> and I still haven't been back to Japan since I was 10 months old or something, um, so I would like to see it as an adult. Um, I'll, I'll get there. But yeah, we moved around a bunch, and then my parents split when I was nine. And me, my mom, and my brother, who's uh, seven years younger than me, moved to Indianapolis, Indiana, because her sisters live there, and I had a lot of cousins there. And then my dad moved to Maryland with his new wife, my ex-stepmom. How many days a year did you spend with your dad? I think maybe a week or two in the summer, and then uh, Christmas. So essentially two or three weeks a year you only got to spend with your dad. Yeah, from like 10 to 18. Some people get less. But yeah, it wasn't it was a drastic drop and um I mean that whole process was bad. It wasn't a nice divorce. It was pretty ugly and people didn't say really nice things. I always say happy ex-wife, happy life. Hmm. Well, she was not happy. And yeah, and that I could see it. I could see everything. I mean, I, I probably didn't see everything, but I saw enough to have it negatively impact me. Um, and but also like, I don't want to be like my parents ruined everything. But you know, it wasn't like they didn't do a good job of hiding how much they really didn't want to be with each other and uh, disliked each other. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, and I, and my relationship with my dad is way better now, but it took a moment because we had this very surface relationship for such a long time because when we saw each other, we'd try to be on our best behavior and be like, this is it. We only have like a couple weeks to cram in as much family time as we can. And so it wasn't real. And, uh, yeah, but, but now I feel like since college, like, Especially when after I opened up about how viewing him and men in general affected me, uh, we've been way more honest with each other, and and you know now we're like adults. We get to talk to each other like adults and like people, and realize that we are people. It took me a while to realize that parents are people. <laughs> and the first inspiration to getting into the business, um, my volleyball coach oh i did tons of activities basketball track i was in show choir orchestra uh, i was on in the honor society prom committee like i just did so much um partly because i wanted to like get scholarships because i wanted to leave and go to a different school out, out of state is that how your guidance counselor tells you you get scholarships as you join all these different clubs I mean, not specifically, but I think it was like, if you have good grades and you look like you are an active member of the school community, then yeah, you have a better chance of getting scholarships. So I had good grades and I did a shit ton of stuff. So I was, and I did get a lot of scholarships. What inspired you? Well, in high school, I watched I Love Lucy all the time and I watched Mad TV and SNL and thought it would be so fun to be on a show like that when you were watching mad tv and snl which one did you like better mad tv it was more pop culture it was more like 
you know, all like singers and, you know, they're parroting Britney Spears and Whitney Houston. And uh, it just, I maybe leaned younger and where SNL was so political and I didn't care about that at the time. So yeah, it was more, it, Mad TV appealed more to me at the time. Which cast members on Mad TV moved you? I mean, Deborah Wilson is number one. <laughs> like she is so, 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 so funny. And it was just great to see a black woman be hilarious and like kind of rule the cast. Like she was in so many sketches and had so many characters and, and is like so talented in so many nuanced ways. Like she could be so big, but also like have really small detailed actions. Like, I don't know. She was a machine and I loved her. When I opened my comedy club in Greenwich Village on West Third Street, simultaneously the old the Village Gate, the 400-seat room, opened up their room with a group called New York Talk. And Deborah Wilson was one of the stars of that group. So was that your first inspiration in the business? Yeah, I guess so. But at the time, I didn't really think that I could do that. I mean, I, I thought like, I would love to do that, but I just didn't even know how those people got there. So it, it didn't cross my mind to even try. I was like, well, that's great that that exists, but I don't know how to do that. When SNL was really female centric, where it had Anna Gosteyer and Sherry O'Terry and Molly Shannon and Nancy Walls, was that inspirational for you? Or you no, I, that was a huge inspiration. And I thought that that was how it was. Like, I was like, this is how it always is. Just powerful women <laughs> taking charge and being super funny all the time. Um, it's not, <laughs> but, but I was I was glad to see that and grow up with that. And yeah, Anna Gasteyer is like, like I love her so much. Um, Amy Poehler, Anna Gasteyer, great straight person. Yes, yeah, fantastic. It's such a quality that people don't realize how valuable and important it is and then there's people like molly shannon and again i hope she wouldn't be mad if i said this i don't think i would ever want to see her as a straight person i don't want to see her moving the scene forward i want to see the crazy yeah so you're inspired and then you get to school and how do you find your muse, what is it that starts putting in your 10,000 hours? Um, well, I was doing musicals in college, and then one of my directors was like, you should audition for the improv team here. And I did audition, didn't make it. Uh, and then I had another friend who auditioned three times and didn't make it. And I was like, and she was one of the funniest people, still is one of the funniest people I know. And... Uh, and still doing comedy. And I was like, this, that seems ridiculous. You should start your own group. And she was like, we should start our own group. So we started our own group and it's still going at the school. And, and it was like a thing that we were doing for fun. And then the touring company for UCB came to my school, my, my senior year. And it was Bobby Moynihan, Neil Casey, Shannon O'Neill, Lennon Parham, and my group and the other improv college group opened for them. And then afterwards, they did a Q&A with the, with the student performers. And someone asked, how do you get a career in comedy? And Bobby Moynihan said, you move to New York, go to UCB, and work really hard. And I 
still have not forgotten that. And I moved to New York and still not thinking that comedy was what I was aiming for. I was still trying to like do plays and Broadway and I was auditioning for all these off-Broadway things, but still going to UCB and watching shows. And then after a couple of months, I was like, I should just take a class. Just try it because I love it so much. You see something that's so great and it's so wonderful and it's like, I'm going to take a class. And could you give me a brochure? How much is the class? $375 for how many days? Okay. And then when I finish this, what happens? 450 for the next thing that I got to And so in order to keep going, you're working within a business. Now I know it could be argued, well, college costs money. You want to get a great education, you got to pay for it. But you can't get to where you want to go in UCB or the Groundlings without money. And that's the sad reality of what it's like. You can be, I mean, there's so many people who are hugely successful in business that never went to college. But if you want to compete in that world and you're not a part of one of those places or in the stand-up world, you're like a dead person walking. Yeah. And when you go to New York, it's so hard to make it. I mean, it's just the shittiest apartment is beyond your means. Mm -hmm. And so how did you figure out a way to make it? Well, one, I got into a car accident right before I moved to New York and got some settlement money. So I had some money to move with. And then I was in a shitty apartment in Greenpoint for four years that had no window in my bedroom, mice, roaches, the ceiling fell in at one point in time. It was just like <laughs> comically bad. And looking back, I'm like, I can't believe I did that for four years. But how much was that a month? It started off with 575. Were you alone or with roommates? I was with uh, three to four other roommates <laughs> at any time. And how many bedrooms were in the place? There were four, technically, really? but three did not have windows and probably weren't legally supposed to be <laughs> bedrooms. Um, but yeah, there was like a big bedroom at the end of the hall that had two windows that were, that were nice and had sunlight. And then <laughs> three other ones that were oddly shaped that we filled with other comedians. It was like a comedy house. And it was a nice house. I like I do remember that time fondly. It was like fun to be there and like rehearse improv in my living room and like sing songs and like workshop jokes with other comedians there, but also, you know, uh our landlord was a bully and a slumlord and <laughs> we and I would hear mice underneath my bed sometimes and it was just, you know, not the best. Um, so you so you're, you start your first improv experience at UCB. Mm -hmm. You pay your three fifty or your three seventy five or whatever it is. You do the course, and after it's all over, obviously there were other people in the course with you. Yeah. And you, of all people, I think have a great understanding of where you stand and where other people stand. So as the week was ending, were you saying to yourself, I'm so much better than these people? Or was there one person there that was like, God, I'm never going to be as good as that guy? It was a mix because some people who were starting, especially the first class, especially 101, where it's like 
some business people who want to learn how to do public speaking, which I still don't understand why people take improv for public speaking. But I mean, I guess it loosens you up. But, um, you know, you don't have to learn Harold to do that. But yeah, some people from... You're going to have to explain to our audience Harold. Oh, now. sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Harold is a form that uh, you perform with a, with a team of improvisers, usually like eight people. And then there are, um, I mean... Oh, I haven't done a Herald in so long. <laughs> you break it down. There's like three different scenes. Oh, you do an op- opener um, where you can like generate ideas. So you hear a suggestion and you do an opening game for the performers to just get ideas for. And that could be different forms of like a pattern game, which I never liked. Um, but people kept doing it and I kept having to do it because that's what we learned in classes. But where you would say a word and then another word that would relate to it and then another word. And then um, there would be scene painting where you're describing a room. And so yeah, an opening game for the performers to be on the same page about, okay, these are ideas that we could use in the set, in this whole set. So then there's uh, three scenes after that, and then you do a group game uh, that kind of like resets everything. And the three scenes are separate. They don't relate to each other. They should not anyway. Group game to reset everything. That's like a totally different scene that involves everybody, and usually the the uh, the three scenes would be with two people. I I mean, everyone from <laughs> who knows him probably is probably so upset with the way I'm describing this. And then after the group game, you do a couple more scenes that go back to the three scenes that you did initially. So you are um, kind of either seeing this a jump in time, like either this is in, in the past or in the future with the same characters. Or you're doing a mapping thing where you're taking the same game, but you have different characters in a different environment. Um, so if it was like the game was like um, you were monkeys in a jungle and you uh, you couldn't figure out how to peel the banana. And, you, and you're so you're trying different ways to eat the banana. The second game that you visit could be um, instead of monkeys, maybe you're astronauts and you can't figure out how, how to open the tang or something. I don't know. And then uh, another group game kind of wipes clean everything that happened. And then the the last three beats kind of connect everything. And yeah, that's basically a Herald. But like the way UCB does it, I think is a little different than the way IO does it. It's like some people do a looser Herald. The way UCB teaches it is very structured. Um, And it's helpful because it does teach you game. Like it teaches you how to be able to come back to the same theme and uh, and like have repetition and patterns. And then it also teaches you, um, you know, how to bring things back, like callbacks and stuff. So it's, it's very helpful. Um, I stopped doing heralds after classes, after I didn't have to. <laughs> after, we, after my 401 class, I, I started exploring other different forms and the team that I'm, I'm currently on two teams. I'm on a team at, that performs on Fridays at UCB East whenever, and I jump in whenever I can. Um, and we do a mono scene, which is one long scene, like a play. And uh, that's fun for me because it's more like character development and more story. Now, you know how comedians who have been established themselves, they got to the point on the big stage. And they'll walk into a comedy club and it's like, oh, Joe, you're going to be bumped. Louis coming in. Mm-hmm. When it comes to the improv, 
is there ever a situation where somebody just walks in who's a cast member on Mad TV or SNL who was a part of the UCB world? Or even somebody who's way, way established who probably wouldn't even go on anymore, like Amy Poehler. Mm -hmm. And they just walk in and they say, you know what, I feel like stepping in tonight. Is that acceptable or is that not acceptable in that world? Or does it have to be more like, hey, Amy, you're coming in and I know you started this whole thing, but I want you to know what we're doing here and you're going to be a part of this. It would be ideal to have that conversation first to be like, so here's who you're playing with. Ideally, you know them. This is what the form, the form that we do. Um, but some people do drop in. I think years ago, Robin Williams dropped in at UCB, just like played with a group. And, you know, he had never played or met with those people before, but he just like jumped in and was like, and it didn't matter because everyone's just like excited to see him. <laughs> so it doesn't matter what he does, even if it's wrong. They're like, whatever. <laughs> um, but that that's pretty rare, though. I haven't heard of too many times where people will jump in and just be like, yeah, put me up. I just want to do whatever. Um, also, because I think a, a lot of performers who have not done improv are terrified of it. So if you're someone who has done it for years, then, yeah, you can probably jump in with any group and be fine. But um, I think it'd be rare for just random performers to, to show up and be like, I feel comfortable. <laughs> Put me in. To move up in UCB, everybody talks about the Sunday company. Mm -hmm. And you're working your way through the classes and you're paying the money, but you have a goal in mind of, I got to get to this top. I got to get to the A-team. Yeah. How long did it take you to work your way through the program and finally somebody said you know what this person's leaving and you are going to step up into this maybe i did it pretty fast maybe three or four years um also uh going back to how i paid for the classes so i paid for my first two classes um uh, but then i didn't know if i was able to pay for more and at the time you got into another accident to pay for it <laughs> I was looking for cars like who can hit me but not too much uh oh but they had a they still have a diversity program and this was in the early stages of it so there weren't a lot of um people of color and people of different uh sexual orientation and, and things that would be that would qualify them for a diversity scholarship around so I got four free classes which is like unheard of now but uh, yeah, I did an interview with some of the teachers and then with that, those scholarships, I took two sketch classes and, did, and then two more improv classes. And I'm so glad because I, I didn't know I would like writing sketch, but then I took the classes and I was like, ooh, this is like igniting a new fire in me. Um, and yeah, so then after that, I would audition for the Herald team, which is like, I, I guess, the thing but then once you get on a herald team you want to be on a weekend team um auditioned twice didn't make it and then my two friends nicole byer and keisha zoller same thing auditioned didn't make it we formed doppelganger truly exploded immediately like we took kind of took over the scene they have this thing called cage match where improv teams compete doppelganger was it ucb or was it outside of their your own theater we were in an independent group like so we were an indie team so you were sort of like the if you don't mind me saying key and peel 
they were on Mad TV and Jordan got SNL four episodes left on Mad TV and David Saltzman wouldn't let him out of the contract and he lost SNL and it was the greatest thing that ever happened to him and he should have sent David Saltzman a fruit basket because then he formed his own independent thing with Key. Yeah, I guess so. So when UCB and the powers that be see you guys forming your own thing and you're killing it, does anybody ever sit down with you and say, I was wrong? Well, we didn't get I was wrong, but they they did say, we'll give you your own time slot. So then we became a UCB team. They put their name on us and then... But you're working for the man then. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we were working for the man. Well, we, we tried doing our own regular show at a theater mm-hmm. on our own. And, you know, it's work. And... It's so much easier where UCB already has an audience and they can advertise for you and, you know, the students already take all the money. Yeah, but we weren't doing it for the money. Truly. We were doing it for exposure and because it was fun and we wanted to be somewhere on a regular basis. It's not like it's a podcast or anything. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah. So we, we had no problem saying yes to being at UCB, but then it did limit where we could perform outside of UCB. And that part we didn't like because we were like, well, we, were, we weren't we were formed because of UCB. We were already independent and now we have to play by all these rules. Um, and then one of the members moved to LA and then we kind of just stopped that show anyway because it was usually one of us will have to be out for some reason because we were all just getting busier, which was a good thing. But yeah, so that regular show went away. Um, and then I... I I remember there was a year where I didn't audition for a Herald team because I had doppelganger and I was like, I have my own thing. I don't need to. And I was writing on a sketch team and acting in it. And so I was like, I kind of feel good with these things over here. And I was hosting a variety show. So I was like already very much in the community. And um, yeah, I was asked to audition for a Herald team and I said no, because I was like, I'm good. And then doppelganger stopped having a regular show and I asked could I be on a <laughs> Herald team now because I I want to have a regular improv team again and uh, got on the team that I'm on now and then we moved to the weekend and I think we you know stood out so much is because we we kind of put a spin on the Herald we, we did a like a LaRonde Herald which was wildly complicated <laughs> when I think about like the stuff that we did for improv I mean like we were all nerds about it but just like being like how can we <laughs> doctor this and and change it but um yeah a, a Laurent is where you have two people in a scene and then one person leaves and someone else joins that last person and then you kind of have a new scene and so we would do that style but within the con the constraints of a herald we were just making a lot of work for ourselves but <laughs> but it was always very fun and then we would do monoscene heralds um and yeah, and now we're on the weekend and we get to do whatever we want, which is so great. <laughs> so take our audience through a day before you find out that SNL is coming in and what's going through your mind when you're with a group. It's not like a stand-up, Lorne or Marcy or whoever comes to the club. Yeah, there's other comics on, but I'm going on and again... I'm writing, I am directing, I am starring, I am executive producing. I make decisions what Lauren sees 
from the moment I go on to the moment I say goodnight. But what it's like as a performer in a sketch improv family where you're being showcased with a bunch of people, but they're intermingling in your stuff, and there's a lot of improvisation. Yes, there is the Rolodex of things you have in your mind that you've done before that they don't know that you've done before. But somebody can just come in and just tap you on the shoulder. Okay, you're out. And you're like, what, what do you mean? I'm out. I'm ringing more comedy out of this. What are you tapping me for? I want to give it everything I have. So you're these variables. It's a great feeling. But these variables in my mind, I'd be so anxious because they're like, God, is Joey going to fuck me up on this one? I mean, this is my big break. This guy could come in and try to just chew on the scenery here. And he could do that just to get the job. So how do you navigate and give the kind of performance you need to do and take me through your mindset when you found out and how you found out you were going to audition? Well, uh, there were a few times I, I had a, I guess, audition encounter with the show. So the AD of UCB at the time when Doppelganger was like in its beginning part uh, was Anthony King. And he told one of the producers from SNL, hey, you should come look at these girls because they're very funny and they're here all the time. And so a producer came to see us perform. And uh, I can't remember if we knew beforehand or not. I don't know, but we had a great show because we always have great shows. <laughs> and which people came to those from the show? Lindsay Shookus. So Lindsay was the one who came, not mm -hmm. Marcy, not right. Lauren. Right. And she just, you know, stood in the back of the theater, watched us, and then she met us afterwards and said, you know, you guys are great. You guys should submit packets and tapes. And so we made tapes together. So green. <laughs> like, I don't even know if I have access to that tape that I made. It was so, it was, you know, a new person <laughs> trying to do this. Uh, and then we all wrote packets and then dropped them off. And then we got asked to do that the next year. And they had showcases where you do your audition in front of an audience and the producers and Lauren and uh, did that for that next year and then the next year. And then um, in 2013, I was like, this is the last time I'm going to try. If it doesn't happen this time, that's OK with me. And when you're trying the other times, did anybody from the group get the show from those other auditions? Nicole tested so she did a showcase. They called her in to do a screen test at the studio. So you're in front of the camera. You're in front of Lorne, the head writers, the producers. And uh, you do your five minutes, whatever that is, either stand up or sketches or, you know, however you want to do it. And, uh, yeah, she felt really good about it. I'm sure I she's an incredible performer and she's one of my favorites. So I imagine it was great. Um, but she didn't get hired. And then... The, uh, the end of 2013 is when they had the like search for a black girl <laughs> contest or whatever. And uh, I had made a practice reel to send to my manager to get notes because they usually look for the reels in the summertime. So like I was like trying to be on top of it. And I was like, let's start in the fall and then I'll like workshop this stuff to a point where I feel really good about it. And so when they're actually looking for people, I'll be ready. But normally in the normal pattern of SNL, and it's not to say there's ever a normal pattern, but they look before July 4th and they take a break and then 
there's this period where you think they should hire somebody and it just goes into August yeah. and sometimes it goes into September and they'll hire people then and occasionally they will hire people for the January the last six or seven episodes I think they do 13 mm -hmm. from September through December and then they do seven in the back end of the year yeah and so that's what you were gearing for yeah so I'd, I was auditioning in December and uh, yeah so the practice reel I sent my manager he was like they need this now because they're looking for people so he give, he sends it to them maybe that week or the next we do a showcase in front of an audience and uh, Lauren and, and producers and I left the stage feeling like yeah I did it like, <laughs> like I felt like that was I was like so confident that I killed it and I did because they called me back for another uh, for the test and uh, the notes that I got back was, you know, we loved what you did. Just do the same thing. And I was like, no. <laughs> and so, um, the night before it was me and my roommate and, and, and good friend Mateo Lane in our apartment and we're just rehearsing new stuff. And I'm just like going, you know, for hours trying to figure out how I'm going to change this. And, and I did a mix of stand up and character. So I was like talking as myself, but I was talking about the holidays since we were like, in around Christmas time and then, uh, you know, kind of weaving characters in there. Like, wouldn't it be funny if you were like, you know, having Christmas dinner with <laughs> Rihanna and Nicki Minaj or whatever the thing was, I can't remember. But yeah, I was like weaving characters within the standup and, and I felt like it was a good combination of showing you me, but also what I can do. And I felt really good about it afterwards. I felt good about my showcase, but I felt really good about my, my, what I was, what I prepared for my test. And then, I would go into the the studio and we're waiting for hours because that's what you do. <laughs> that's what they make you do. And uh, I remember Chris Kelly, the stage manager, like, you know, patted me on the back and he was like, you're just, you're just going to look at the camera. Everyone's going to be on the side, which doesn't make sense. But, you know, the audience is to the left of you, but you can't look over there. You have to play to the camera. But if you get nervous or scared or anything, I'm right next to the camera and I'll be smiling the whole time. And that was so comforting and so wonderful. And I got to the stage and he was, he was standing right next to the camera and just like, cause they want it, they want you to do well. Everyone wants you to do well and they want you to be the best you can be cause they want you to be on the show. Like they want whoever is the best for the show to be on the show. And so they want you to be comfortable and they're not trying to scare you. Oh, I mean, maybe they are trying to scare you, but like as a whole, they want you to, to want to be on the show so so chris was like so warm and then there was someone else who was like on the on the sound booth like also like yeah you're ready you're ready to go and i, I peeked over to the left for a little bit and seth myers is sitting there and he smiled and i was like okay i think i'll be okay and truly felt like i blacked out like i did it <laughs> but like i don't remember living in that moment i don't remember feeling anything i just i did it but i left the stage feeling like that was the best I've ever done anything. I can't think of one thing I would change. And that was a really nice feeling. And then I went home and was kind of like, it's up to them if they want this, great. If not, that has nothing to do with me because I gave them the best I can give them and if they don't want it, that's fine. And this is what's amazing about most tests. I'm gonna share with you something that I'm going to bet on that you did the best you've ever done in your life and you wouldn't have changed anything 
and you walked off the stage and not one person from that side was sitting down, came up to you and shook your hand and said, nice job. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> yeah. No. But, you know, that's not their thing. <laughs> that's not what they, they do. They're, they're not great at letting you know that you're doing a good job. <laughs> um, okay, so you go home. I go home, and it was kind of wacky because I woke up to a bunch of tweets because Lena Dunham had tweeted a sketch that I had written and been in, um, you know, months before. This is crazy, funny, and a wonderful antidote to today's internet. Was that her tweet? Yeah, so the flasher video that I did. Um, that was a joke that I did on stage for a while where I, I tell a story about how I got flashed on the street and then I tell the same story from the perspective of the flasher. And my one of my best friends, Chioke Nasor, before we were friends, he saw me perform this joke. And then we have friends in common and we, we started hanging out and he mentioned the joke and he goes, I would really like to film this and have you act out all the parts. And I was like, all right, sure. And, you know, he got some money from this production company and and we uh, did everything on the cheap. We filmed in my apartment. We filmed on the street outside my apartment. I used all my clothes. Like, it was, like, so cheap, but it looked so good. And it got both of us work from there. Like, you know, Joke, I got more work in comedy and with working with comedians specifically. And I got more work because people started seeing, like, what I could do and what I could write. And yeah, so that's the thing where I felt so proud of it and I was glad it was out in the world. And then Lena Dunham is like, I agree. <laughs> this is great. And then she tweeted that and I was like, you know what? Even if this SNL thing doesn't happen, <laughs> other people already recognize my talents. And again, I hate to be broken record. Wrote, starred, executive produced. Yeah. <laughs> your own thing. Yeah. You weren't working for anybody. No. Total satisfaction. Yeah, I think that is where that is where I feel the most happy when it's like I made this. I created this. I also love being in things where it's like I'm acting in this or, you know, I'm a part of this, but when it's like I am the creator, that's where I I really feel good. Um yeah, and then I got the call, I mm. guess weeks later because this was around the Christmas show and they were like, "We'll let you know before Christmas." They didn't, and they don't have to. <laughs> and I think I got the call January 8th. And Who made the call? I got a, well, I missed the call somehow. I had the phone literally on me <laughs> at all times. And I was like, and just like sick. I like never left the house. I was smelly, didn't take a shower. I was in pajamas the whole time. And thank God my roommates were feeding me because I was like, I just can't leave. And I got away for this call. And I left the my bedroom for two seconds to go to the kitchen, came back, missed two calls. And I was like, what? How did this happen? Called back and it, it was one of Lauren's assistants. And I was like, hi, did I, I miss a call? She goes, yes, I'll patch you through. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> and it was Lauren and Kenward, one of the other producers and Eric Kenward. And uh, and Lauren goes, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's one of those vague things where it was like, did, did you say that I'm hired? <laughs> where he was like, yeah, you know, we think that you would be, you you would have fun here and that you, it was like a lot of you would or like this could happen. And I was like, am I? 
going to work there. But I was just like, uh-huh, that sounds great. I think, yeah, I'm, I would love that if that happened. <laughs> and he's like, yep. All right. Well, you know, uh, we'll see, we'll see, we'll see. And then he like hung up and then Ken would call me afterwards and was like, so just to clarify, you are hired. <laughs> you will start work next week. Um, and you know, we'll send you details and blah, 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 blah. And yeah. And then I just screamed my head off. And then the third person to call me was the publicist because she was like, because this was so public, uh, she was worried that, you know, press would start calling me to figure out to like get a scoop or something and uh so she was like don't tell anyone if anyone calls you don't say anything we're, we're trying to keep the secret and uh and then the fourth person to call me was cnn <laughs> and uh which like was pretty shady i don't know how they got my number but i i think because i worked with some other news people from another network that they maybe passed it on which i don't really like but they, yeah they were like can we ask you about being on SNL and I was like no the publicist just told me I can't say anything and she's like oh rats all right we got you a little too late <laughs> and um yeah and then they broke the news I think later that day because they realized they couldn't keep a secret for that long and you had no manager no agent nobody or I had a manager and I just signed with an agent maybe a month before these auditions even happened so yeah I had a, my manager helped me get a, a, an agent and then this started happening and I got hired and I think they were like, yes, <laughs> score. And, uh, yeah. And then I, I, then I was on the show. I look at Lauren as a genius who in the world has ever created anything that has gone over 40 years. No individual is bigger than the show, no matter what. There could be a riot and he would figure out a way to produce the show that week. So for you, you get there, you're in the trenches, you're used to the politics at UCB, you're used to the people behind the scenes who shake your hand and hug you. Oh God, you're so good. You were so good this week. And then you're used to those people who try to figure out a way to take you down. You're used to that, but you're not used to it on the big, big stage. So when you analyze it, what's your part in what you felt didn't go the way you wanted it to? And what's the show's part? That's really complicated. I think if you, even if you asked a couple what went wrong in this relationship there's so many factors and even if you they had answers there's still things that they don't even know and it's like when did you start distrusting each other when did you start looking at other people when did you start like there's so many things and it's like i don't know it kind of fell apart um so i can guess but i kind of stopped thinking about it there was there were there was a period where i was racking my brain like well why what is it is what am I doing or what is a show doing? Or like, it would be so much easier to be like, so-and-so hated me. <laughs> or like, you know, um, I didn't get along with this person or, you know, this, I tried to, I kept trying to pitch this, but it never worked. Or like, there was no specific thing that, that made it the way it was. It was, it just was. And, and so I had to figure out if I wanted to stay and figure that out or go do what I do best, which is create. And I felt like I wasn't able to do that. So 
I left. So I was representing Jim Brewer on SNL, and Jim was a guy that was a human highlight film of stand-up. There isn't any comic you could walk up to and say, what do you think of Jim Brewer would say? He's okay. I mean, it would just be always, oh my God, I can't believe what this guy does on stage. And in person, and just he's the funniest guy off stage. But Jim, politically, I remember he got a front page article in some paper and he did the interview and he shared about how he had trouble with people writing for him and the people, the writers saw the quotes and they were offended by it and slowly his time dwindled and then he decided to do an MTV show because he could do basic cable and he was doing characters on MTV and they were looking at that and Lauren, uh, for those of you who don't know, your option is normally up around May 30th. And then the show has the right to ask you if you will extend a free option another month while they figure things out. And then the show can say, at that point, we're going to extend another free option if you'll do that. Will you accept it or not? And they can do that three times during the summer. And it's gut-wrenching because you know they're extending the option because they're looking at other people. They're talking it over. And I remember a night before the last option with Jim Brewer, and I stayed up all night, and I wrote this amazing letter that I faxed to Lorne, and I got a call at midnight And he said, Barry, I've been racking my brain about this. I read your letter, and I just want to tell you the art of the written letter is a dying art. And the fact that you put all this down on paper and you are so passionate about it, it means a lot to me. Obviously, I believed in Jim. I hired him, but I just can't seem to get the other people on the show to be behind him. And... Even though I'm the guy who people look to, I don't think it's right of me to go against what the majority of people are feeling. And so even though you wrote me this beautiful letter, I'm sorry to say I'm not going to pick up his option. And I've been where you've been with artists as a manager. Look, Jay Moore was on for two years. Again, they extended the option. When they went to extend the third option, Jay said... Barry, tell Lauren I'm not doing it. I'm like, Jay, just believe in yourself. He just needs time. No, Barry, I'm not doing it. I have to bet on myself. I have to believe in myself. And I feel like I don't have the control. I don't have the ability to get on. I can't seem to break through Sandler and Farley and Hardman Myers and Spade, I just can't. And I remember calling Lauren and Marcy and telling them that one of the worst calls I ever made. And I believe in making calls like that, but you know, this is a young kid. He's almost probably 22. I'm thinking this is, if he doesn't pick up your option, then you can still do what you want to do. But I was wrong in a way because the next audition he had was Jerry Maguire. And his life changed forever when he booked that role. So he took control back. How 
did you have the guts to find the strength to do that and the confidence of knowing that your next thing that you would go into your future would be bright well i think it's a thing about betting on yourself and and like i said before i haven't done anything where i've cut things off without talking about it first so we've had talks where we're trying to make it work and like i don't understand why this is happening and i've also gotten the gilda renner <laughs> cookie talk and also the you know even gilda who had won an emmy came back the next week and wasn't even in the show and um yeah and you know one thing i'm still really happy about is that lauren really wanted me to win till the end it wasn't like i can't think of a time where he was disappointed in me or just like you know he wanted me to do well on that show there's just so many factors as to why it didn't happen and i don't even know all the factors and i don't think he would either um but uh he did try and i tried we all tried <laughs> and and um you know when i told him i wanted to to leave he was a very understanding and and that was the best case scenario so I feel really good about it. And I had thought about it for a very long time. So I guess by the time I did it, I didn't know what the next step was gonna be, but I knew it would make me feel better than how I felt then. I was not feeling great for a couple years. So I was like, I'd rather go and risk it, not knowing what's gonna be on the other side than stay and just tr grit and bear. Because I could have stayed. Probably could have stayed a full seven years and then just hoped that I would get more stage time year after year. Or I could leave and just see what happens. I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK. It's centered on the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. Go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary. I guarantee you it will blow you away. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention the name of somebody, just anything that comes to mind. Okay. Amy Poehler. <laughs> Happiness. Tina Fey. Uh, smart. Leslie Jones. Joy. Melissa McCarthy. <laughs> Powerhouse. Amy Schumer. Support. Kate McKinnon. <laughs> Love. Charlize Theron. Ooh, uh, poise. Lena Dunham. <laughs> um, goofy. Sarah Silverman. Um, shining star. Amy Adams. Sweetheart. Scarlett Johansson. Babe. <laughs> Kristen Wiig. Um, Multi-talented. Dave Chappelle. Uh, a force. Chris Rock. Um, a leader. Alec Baldwin. 
Great. Lauren Michaels. The boss. Awesome. Your proudest moment in show business. I mean, this moment, like being free, being doing what I want to do. This transition, this summer has been my proudest moment. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. I mean, I guess not making my improv group in college propelled me to make my improv group in college <laughs> and not making the Herald team at UCB propelled me to make my own improv group that became very popular and got the attention of SNL. Yeah, out of rejection comes a reason for me to create my own thing that will probably propel me to the next level. Your greatest holy shit moment in your career. Um, meeting Beyonce. <laughs> Met her at the 40th anniversary and it's still a holy shit moment for me. <laughs> <laughs> Last question. What advice do you have for the young person who's just growing up in a certain existence? Maybe they're experiencing divorce. Maybe they're experiencing a lack of stability. Maybe they don't necessarily have any goals or what they're going to do or how they're going to do it. And for some reason, they find that spark. How do they have the kind of career that you've had what advice could you give them to take them from the early stages to the big stage where you've been? I would say follow the fun. Whatever you find to be fun, no matter how nerdy it might be or how like silly someone else might think it is, like whatever the thing is, if you love doing it, if you're really passionate about doing it, you do it it shouldn't matter what other people think and you know hopefully that will guide you to where you're supposed to be there's no map or like clear path to how anyone gets to any point in their career the way I got to SNL is way different than the way someone else got to SNL um but you know if you just keep following the passion and keep following what you believe in and not what other people are telling you what you should believe in, then I think you'll get there. This has been so amazing. I think I'm crying. Right now. <laughs> it's just so fantastic. I can't even tell you how important this is for the audience. And I've seen a side of you that I never knew. And I hope the audience sees what I see in you because you are a huge star personally and you are a huge star professionally and i really believe that thank you so much thank you very much thanks for having me awesome as always this is another episode of industry standard with me barry katz if you like the show tell all your friends and if you don't like the show tell all your friends okay i'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message a review on the iTunes comment review section and one of these people will be a lucky winner and they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions or else if they're out of town, out of state or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them 
or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on MTAB 303, March 28th, 2016. Title, Why Am I Paying for School? Question mark, exclamation point, question mark, exclamation point. Five stars. It reads, I am currently a college student with hopes of one day establishing a career in entertainment. I get more invaluable information about what I want to do from this podcast alone than I have gotten in my three years of college education. The first-hand accounts from greatness itself is unparalleled, and there is nothing like it on iTunes. By far the most entertaining and insightful podcast I know of. Five out of five stars. Exclamation point. Well, MTAB 303, I am humbled and flattered, and I am so, so grateful for that review. Incredible. I'm speechless. Thank you, and congratulations. Special thanks to our new sponsor, AquaTrue, the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. Check it out. Go to industrystandardwater.com. Takes you directly to their website. Type in the code 100. Save yourself $100. I have one of these. It's amazing. Start turning your tap water into the best tasting water. Industrystandardwater.com. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money, drop that fancy car. All the people love you, you're going for. Life is for the dreamer. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.